And welcome to Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest this week is Jim Peterick. Now Jim, one of the most talented musician songwriters in the business. He was a lead singer and songwriter for the band The Ides of March. Their signature song, Vehicle, hit number two on the Billboard charts. Jim will play a portion of that song live, which is fantastic. His latest band, Pride of Lions, features an amazing lead singer, Toby Hitchcock. We talk about his discovery. And of course, we talk about his former band, Survivor, which he was a co-writer of amazing songs, not just the two Rocky staples, I the Tiger, Burning Heart, but we talk about the song that kind of broke Survivor out of that Rocky stigma, which happens to be my favorite Survivor song. And he's been very busy during this pandemic. We talk about that. Jim was right at the top of the list when I started this podcast. And my goal of talking to as many surviving contributors to the Rocky Four soundtrack is getting closer to completion now. Now that I talked to Jim, he was an amazing guest, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with him. So, Jim, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm going to start with this year. I mean, even with the pandemic, you've been super busy, and I just want to talk about the... Um, one of my favorite songs I've heard in a long time, Carry Me Back. It just came out a couple of weeks ago. I love the song. Yeah. It's such a throwback, like the mid-80s. Uh, first off, congrats on the album, the song. Um, and Toby Hitchcock, the, the vocalist, he, he's amazing. I, he he could have, you know, fit right into, you know, your previous bands and, you know, without, you know, how did you discover Toby? It was so long ago He had just a blink of an eye You wore that certain smile That tempted me to stop
Wow. Well, it was really funny. Uh, as you know, I have a long history with the, my original band, The Ides of March. And when I left Survivor in, in 96, I really amped up uh, The Ides of March. And we started doing shows, 40 shows a year uh, or more. And one day we played the Popcorn Festival in Valparaiso, Indiana. You know, thousands of people. And in the front row, there was this guy that was really into it. He's clapping along and everything. And after the show, this kind of lanky, awkward kid came up to me and said, uh, I, you guys were great. My name's Toby Hitchcock. I, I'm a singer. And I go, oh, that's nice. You know, cool. You know, he said, no, you really got to hear me someday. You know, and I said, I would love to hear you. He, he said, in fact, talk to your niece, Kelly, because I just met her at a Dick Clark audition and she loved my voice. I said, okay, well, I'll call Kelly and make sure you're not lying to me. But I got home and I called Kelly. She said, Uncle Jimmy, this kid is, this guy is amazing. He blew me away. So, okay, that I have to hear him. So I invited Kelly, my niece, and Toby over to our studio and Larry Millis, who, uh, uh, who you'll meet over there. He's my, not only Ides of March compadre, but also my engineer and co-producer and co-writer, uh, he set up a session and we recorded a song called No Long Goodbyes, which still has not seen the light of day. We have to fix that. But it was a duet between Kelly and this guy named Toby Hitchcock. And uh, I heard his voice coming through the, the, um, the playback speakers and I had goosebumps. It's like I heard uh, shades of, of uh, Dennis DeYoung, of Jimmy Jameson, of Tommy Shaw, all combined in one voice. I was just totally blown away. And I called Serafino from, uh, you know, uh, Frontiers. I said, I think we found our guy because he was looking for a singer for me to do something like a Survivor type of project. Um, and I couldn't find the right, right singer. So he heard, uh, I said, you got to fly in and hear him. So he and Mario flew into Chicago, not to Chicago, but to uh, Nashville. And Toby and I flew to Nashville and we rented a studio and we auditioned. I didn't have to audition. They know what I sound like. But Toby had to audition for the record company and we played him a few songs that we had just, just worked out. And um, they flipped out. You know, Serafino says, Maestro, you have found your man, but he's just a baby. Right. You know, because, I mean, he has a very mature voice, um, but, you know, he's now he's like 39 years old. He still sounds the same, but I think every album, he gets even better and, and more depth to his voice. And I think Lion King is the best album he's ever sung. Right now, it's, it's fantastic. I listened to it over the weekend uh, a couple times. And another one, uh, the Lionheart song, which it's very, you know, emotional, very powerful. Was that kind of like um, you guys work on that as kind of like a fundraising type of song for like you know charities and stuff that has that kind of feel?
Well, I'm sure it will have its purpose down the road. Right now, it um, hasn't been used for uh, anything uh, that noble, not yet. But, but uh, my publisher loves it, and we're looking for a home where we can really do some good, because that's what that song's all about. Uh, and, uh, you know, Carry Me Back is more just like a, a pop thing that could have fit in, like an uh, album like uh, Vital Signs by Survivor, and fit in just really well. Uh, you know, but Lionheart has more, uh, even more depth to it, and is talk, talking about people that do things not for the money, but from their heart to raise money, to raise awareness for disease and, uh, and oppression and homelessness and all those wonderful things. And from a technical point of view, that song is unique because my son, Colin, uh, who's now 31 years old, played uh, drums on it. And his bass player, uh, Kevin, played bass because I couldn't, uh, I, I wanted to record this, this song right away. And my usual rhythm section, Eddie Brunkenfeld on drums and Clem Hayes on bass were not available. So uh, I asked Colin Peterick if he would do it and they knocked it out of the park. So for a dad, that's a real special moment, you know. But was that the first time you recorded with uh, Colin or no? For Pride of Lions, yes. Uh, but I have worked with him for other projects, you know, but not, uh, not Pride of Lions. Yeah, you mentioned about, you know, the song, you know, having substance and doing good. You also had that with your song, Empty Arena, that came out earlier this year. Um, you know, it's a, f a fantastic song, and this whole year has been screwed up. And how, um, how, how has that song been, you know, to getting awareness out for, like, you know, artists who are, you know, basically struggling this year? Touchdown and nobody cheered. What if the band played that big encore with no one in his shot to hear? What if the children learned all of the lies, determined to sing at their moment to shine? But mom and dad were nowhere standing near. This is the sound. Sound that history makes the panic and fear when the earth starts. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, it's tragic. You know, I mean, not only are the audience deprived, but so are the musicians who, uh, you know, count on uh, income, uh, especially the struggling musicians that, uh, you know, are in the clubs that don't have a record contract, that don't have uh, hits to fall back on for a royalty stream, which is most of most people. I'm, I'm very blessed because I have a long history of, of hit records and uh, uh, you know, I, I can survive, but so many people around me just don't have that, and they live from gig to gig. So uh, it, it's really a, a hard situation. Not only you, you know, you've been in business for a while now, you know, you've seen record sales, you know, all your records, you know, top of the charts, and now being in the kind of digital age with, you know, the part of life and then, you know, also the world stage, um, what are the expectations for these albums? Is it just to be heard? Oh, you know, well, we always dream of, uh, you know, the old days of it going gold and platinum. But, you know, times have changed. And, and now, you know, you're talking about downloads and you're talking about live, live streams and a whole different world. You know, and, and physical product is, is even kind of becoming a thing of the past. Uh, CDs, uh, you know, are still sold, you know, even though they're kind of obsolete, the, the loyal fans of music from the 80s still buy CDs, you know, and we're, we're still hooked on that. And we usually do vinyl as well, although we didn't do vinyl on this one, unfortunately, because, uh, you know, Serafino felt there wasn't quite enough people to support vinyl. But the last part of Lion's album uh, was uh, issued in vinyl. And I w I'm really uh, a little disappointed that this one is not in, in vinyl because the artwork uh, is so stunning. Uh, it, it's by a famous uh, uh, album designer who did so many uh, iconic albums from the from the 80s. Uh, so it's a beautiful, beautiful cover. Right. You know, the world stage, and you've had so many iconic, uh, you know, lead lead singers from you know great bands. Um, how did you get all those guys to perform on the album? I mean, that's like, that's a feat upon itself. Tell me about it. Uh, it's, I'm very blessed you know, to, have a lot of to have a lot of friends. And uh, I, I've never, I'm not the kind of guy that's ever burned his bridges. And uh, I've always enjoyed touring with all these people. You know, I mean, there was never the kind of rivalry between bands. So at the end of the day, you know, I would call, you know, Kelly Kagi or any, any of the artists, you know, including, uh, well, everyone you see uh, on this album, on the World Stage albums. And uh, most of them are like, yeah, Jim, we're, we're behind you, you know, and you know the people I get. Are, some of them, like Work of Art, you know, from, uh, from overseas. Work of Art's one of the best unknown rock bands, you know, that hasn't broken in America yet. Uh, but but Lars, you know, is one of the greatest singers. He's another Jimmy Jameson. He's another Toby Hitchcock. Uh, and I, I was honored to get him to not only sing, but also to co-write uh, songs for the most recent uh, World Stage album. So with Dennis DeYoung, you know, formerly of Sticks, The Proof of Heaven, which, I mean, he knocks it out of the park again. That's a, that was like a fun shoot. Because you guys looked like, yeah, you guys had a lot of fun in that video. Secrets of the 
Yeah, the video is a lot of fun. We did that um, in, in, a, in a soundstage. It wasn't the, uh, my son has a soundstage called uh, the Jam Lab, but this was done at uh, Greg Barrow's soundstage. And we called in August from a Dennis's band, and I believe Colin played the, the keyboards, and Eddie Breckenfeld played the drums. And uh, we had a blast, and you know, it was just um, a great spirit. And, and Dennis, who I always thought was like very formal, he was goofing around and dancing with me, and, and I was like, oh, geez, you know, that's not the Dennis I know, you know. And so you, I, it really set me on fire, and I, I think you can see the chemistry of us just really, really enjoying our, ourselves. And Proof of Heaven is, you know, one of my favorite songs on, on that record. Uh, and I'll tell you what, you know, Dennis is an amazing writer. He, he pushed me harder and harder, mainly lyrically, because his lyrics are so fantastic. And proof of heaven is proof of Dennis. <laughs> I, I make a joke. He's proof of his amazing lyrics. I mean, I was part of the lyric process, but um, he really brought it home. And now, what is your songwriting process? Is it like is, when you work collaborate with someone, is it different? Per each person, or do you have like one set like like way in writing your songs? Wow, um, Noel, it's always different, you know. But I have learned something. Every co-writer, there's a specific way I like to write, and they're all different. With Dennis, we tried writing together uh, about 15 years ago with no success at all, because we came to the writing session without any ideas, and we would sit there and try to come up with ideas from from nowhere. That's a nice idea, except it didn't work for us. And we ended up not really writing anything. We wrote a couple things that just never, never came to, to be. This time we did it different. And every writing session, we would both bring uh, what I call seed ideas, seeds that, uh, well, Dennis, I got this chorus. Take a listen to this, da, 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 da. He said, I like that. And then we'd, we would work on that, and then we'd expand it and work on a verse. Or he would say, Jim, I've got this verse, and he would play me a verse. I said, oh, man, I love that. And I would immediately find a chorus. So we found our uh, this jigsaw puzzle called a song, and, and that's how we, we write it. Now, um, like, I guess going way back, um, what was the really influences growing up, and like, how did you get involved in music? Well, well I was music from the time I was, you know, in the cradle, kicking the slats off the cradle. Uh, I had two sisters, uh, both older than me, quite a bit older than me, who brought brought in the uh, the 45 records. We had this uh, RCA Victor spindle uh, player. You could stack about 10 45s on this record player. And they would bring home uh, Elvis Presley and Johnny Cash and Chuck Berry and the Everly Brothers. I mean, the best of the, of the 50s, you know, and I didn't know what I was hearing. All I knew is this is the stuff I like, you know, and I would dance and sing along and and they taught me to play ukulele. So every vacation we'd be driving down to Florida with our, our, our parents and we'd be in the in the back seat with three ukuleles singing bye bye love to do to do bye bye happiness. You know, I mean, I grew up with that. The music, the rock and roll was with me every every step of the way. So that's really what started it. And then finally, my parents bought me a guitar and I still have that original guitar. It's in the next room. I'm so glad I never sold it. Uh, it's a piece of junk, but you know, you got to start with it. And I cherish that guitar today. 
And that's uh, like one of what over two hundred now you have. Two two hundred and thirty and and still counting. Just before I talk to you, Noel, I made a call, uh, not a call, but an email um, to this one, what's well, called the guitar broker in, uh, in Florida. And I said, Craig, by any chance, do you still have that Fender bowling ball Strat? And they made about 75 of them in the, in the 80s. And it's like they dipped the guitar in a swirl paint. Remember those twirl paints they used to have? And everyone was different. And there's one that they had in the guitar, uh, vintage guitar, about a month ago. And I didn't act on it. And then I'm going, what am I, an idiot? I, boy, I want that guitar. So I, right before we, we got on, online, I, I uh, left him a message. So when I get off with you, uh, Noel, we'll see if he still has that guitar and how much he wants for it. You, you play all of, them, all of them or a lot of them are just for show? You know, the, the, the mint condition collector's items, I don't take them out on the road. I barely play, I barely play them in the studio. They're kind of like sacred because if I, if I play them, my belt buckle is going to F it up, you know, or something's going to happen. And uh, so I, I don't play them all. But, but you know, those, the guitars from the 50s and 60s, nothing sounds better. And so if I have a special recording like Pride of Lions or whatever, I will take a vintage Les Paul or a Flying V and, uh, and play it and be very careful. But there's a reason why those guitars are so valuable. There's nothing like them. So you were, what, 14, 15 when you formed the Ides of March? Well, actually, Larry recruited me when I was 14. He and Bob Berglin already had a band. They weren't called the Ides of March. But they had seen me, saw me perform at uh, at the Fourth of July celebration in, in my uh, at my high school in Berwyn, Illinois, and uh, apparently, as legend has it, Larry said to Bob, "Look at that that kid up there with the black rim glasses. He knows bar chords, and you know what a bar chord is." And uh, they didn't know bar chords. That was very advanced. And he and Larry says, "We gotta recruit this guy. He knows bar chords, you know." So a couple of weeks later, he knocks on my door and I didn't want to have anything to do with him because I already had a band. But by the second time of him knocking on that door, I finally said, okay. And I, I went over to, uh, to Larry's house with my amp in, in my arm and weighed a ton and, uh, and auditioned and it was magic. It was way better than my band. And that became the Ides of March. And then you were, what, you guys were performing locally during that time when you were still in school and balancing, how, how was that balancing the two? Uh, well, you know, uh, we were good students, which was unusual, but you know, we, we were weekend warriors. And finally, when we had a record, uh, well, we had a, a, in 1966, we had a song called, uh, You Wouldn't Listen on the Parrot label, probably familiar with it. Cause you're, I can tell you're a fanatic on, on rock and roll. You. Mm -hmm. 
summer spring and summer so we toured uh, in 66 you know behind bands like the Almond Brothers who at that point were called the Almond Joys and uh, Ardeen Taylor and a bunch of other bands but it really wasn't until Vehicle and we had our big moment and that song went number two on the Billboard charts number one on Cashbox when we really broke through and that was the summer of, se- of 70 so summers have been our friend and that was the year of the one of the years of the pop festival. We were in all these fests with the Grateful Dead and Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and the Association and on and on and on, uh, living the dream. It was uh, great times. Led Zeppelin, right? You were show stage with them too. Oh yeah, I didn't mention that. Yeah. You know, the, the biggest band of all time. Right. I, I kind of heard you uh, overshadowed them a little bit on, on certain occasions, huh? Yeah, one one note, notable uh, was was in Winnipeg, and we had the the, the performance of our life. We got a uh, standing ovation after every number. We did this enormous version of Eleanor Rigby, and you, that's when you could do these epic songs, you know. And people stood up at the end and wouldn't stop applauding. Well, Zeppelin was intimidated. They got up there and they just they sucked that night. Okay. Uh, they had a real bad attitude. They didn't like the PA system. They were out of tune, and the and the audience is like, "Oh God, what's wrong with this band?" You know, and uh, they invited us to a party afterwards, and we went went to this party, and uh, I'll tell you, it it was very awkward because they knew we we smoked them, and uh, the rest is history. It's one of those memories that we'll never forget never if i ever ever have a bad day it's like yeah but we blew led zeppelin off the stage exactly that's, that's great. yeah i think one of my favorite songs by you guys was uh bald medusa Free, gonna 
land If you can, I'm the man with the happiest man in town And you never tasted greed Till I take them while I need one more I Watch my smoke and fan my fire Cause baby, when I am through Those hot licks I've been playing You'll be feeling lonely You're never part of you Oh man, man, this this guy, this Noah's got good taste. Yes, it's me. I'm Bob Medusa. Yeah, man. I mean, look, Noah, if you know that song, you're my friend. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I, I love that song. What, what was that kind of the inspiration for that? Believe it or not, it was Led Zeppelin. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if it was before or after we played with Zeppelin, but we loved Zeppelin. And we loved that first album so much. Good times, bad times, all these great stuff. And that lick was very, you know, good time, bad time. And it was like, you know, it didn't come off like Zeppelin at the end of the day, but that was its inspiration, you know. The word title. And and the title Bald Medusa, that's a, a weird weird title. Uh, it's funny. Mike Borch, our drummer, came up with that title. So, like, you take Medusa and you take off the snakes, and she's Bald Medusa. Go figure. Yeah, I guess then you can look at her, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so a couple of years later, then you kind of go off and Survivor is formed. Uh, Frankie Sullivan. How, how did you meet Frankie? Frankie um, with, was this kid with the long blonde hair. He's kind of crimped it up like um, like Peter Frampton. And I'd always see him in the audience. And a lot of times he was with uh, Rick Wiegand, who was a friend of mine. They would come together and they would watch uh, watch the Ides of March or when it became the Jim Peterick Band. They would be watching the Jim Peterick Band and you know, he was always around, and he he had the cool look. One time we went to a Sticks uh, album opening, and there was Frankie Sullivan. Finally, I'm going, we miss this kid. And uh, I found out he was with a band called Mariah. And, uh, in fact, Mariah was, was managed by Bob DeStocky, who also managed the Ides of March. And, uh, you know, so we had this common thread, and I actually wrote three songs for the Mariah album on United Artists. And... and and there was Frankie playing these songs way before he was a member of, of, of Survivor. Uh, there was a thing called How Are You Gonna Keep Him Down on Broadway After They Seen the Farm and Reunion and, and another song. 
So he was playing on my songs long before he was with uh, Survivor. But when I started putting a band together, I, wanted, I said to myself, I was in, in the hospital trying to recover from a really bad case of pneumonia. Uh, and uh, I, I designed the ultimate rock band and I wrote it down in the hospital and said, okay, Jim Peterick, Frankie Sullivan, mm, how about Den, uh, Dennis Johnson on bass? Cause he was with the group Chase, but he quit Chase. So amazing bass player, Gary Smith from the group Chase, amazing drummer. And what about Dave Bickler? Because I had met Dave doing jingles. You know, we were singing uh, United Airlines, McDonald's commercials, all these commercials. Because at that time, Chicago had this very, um, very vibrant jingle scene. And it was a great way to make money and finance these demo tapes that, that we were doing, I was doing. And uh, I always really liked Dave and I loved his voice, even, even on a McDonald's commercial. You know, you could tell he, he had it. So when I, I got well from my uh, pneumonia, I started calling up people. And I remember that first rehearsal with the five of us, I knew we had kind of captured lightning in a bottle, you know, and uh, that became Survivor. And we did a demo tape and sent it out. And Michael Ladner, who at the time was with Atlantic, he's, he's the very iconic A&R man with the long Jewish Hasidic beard uh, mm -hmm. that you see in like the pump video by, by Aerosmith. And he came out and we rented SIR Studio Instrument instant, instrument Rentals yeah. and we auditioned for him. And we had just worked out a new song called 2020 and he made us play 2020 five times in a row. And after the fifth time he says, I'm, sign I'm signing this band. Right. And we went to Nick's Fish Market and celebrated and the rest is history.
I had Dave on a couple years ago. Oh, Dave, Dave, Dave yeah. Bickler, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, great guy. Yeah, um, yeah. So the first album has you know Kim Basinger on, on the cover. So it, it's it's a great album. Uh, so how yeah. difficult was it for you? I even though you basically formed the band to kind of take a back seat and not be the lead singer and be off you know more behind the scenes and be on the side. Yeah, very difficult. Uh, to, to, I had to swallow hard and to accept that role. But I, I took one for the team. Uh, you know, Frankie was very strong and very, uh, you know, domineering, if, if you will. And uh, he really wanted to do the format of like a journey or, a, you know, foreigner to some extent. Uh, Toto, where you'd have one main singer. I always wanted to take the role of like a two singer band like Journey originally was when, when they had, uh, you know, the keyboard player uh, and, um, you know, Steve Perry. I'm, I'm blanking out on the keyboard player. Help me out. Uh, I'm, I'm um, anyway, they had two singers at the beginning. Right. Uh, and uh, but Frank, Frankie didn't want that. He wanted one singer. And of course, we had great singers. Uh, and of course, you know, as you know, after three albums, uh, uh, there was the first one, uh, you know, with the girl on the cover, the second one, which was Premonition, one of my favorite yeah. Survivor albums. And the third one, of course, was a little thing called Eye of the Tiger. Uh, but after that, uh, Dave ex exited the band. Uh, he lost his voice and needed more than a little time to recover. And that's when we got Jimmy Jamison, who turned it turned out to be just this fantastic singer that took us all the way through, you know, the, the next years and um, many right. albums, just incredible singer. Right. I mean, I'll get to Tiger in a second, but how was it difficult for you guys to like kind of lose Dave? Was there ever a, a thought about kind of waiting for cover or you guys? Well, he, he kind of rolled over pretty easy. He, um, I think he knew the writing was on the wall and, um, and he knew that he had kind of damaged his voice and kind of, you know, beyond repair, although it came back eventually, but it took a long, long time. And I think he knew that. And, uh, you know, he wasn't really happy about it, but knew that the band had to move on. So it was, it was difficult for everybody. And that's when we started holding auditions. And two days before uh, Jimmy auditioned, Kevin Shelfont auditioned. And, uh, of course, he's a great singer as well. And we were this close from saying, Kevin, you got the gig. And, and right. Jimmy showed up and just blew the doors off of everything. And as good as uh, Kevin was, there was just a chemistry uh, with Jimmy that you can't beat. And the first song I, I taught him was um, Broken Promises. And boy, he just nailed it. Right. And then uh, Frankie and I had just written The Search is Over. And, um, and I taught it to him. And, he started singing. I said, Jimmy, did you hear this song before? I, he goes, no. I said, man, you're the quickest study I've ever heard. He was like a, a, a tape recorder. He would play back a whole verse without even practicing. Wow. Did, did you guys um, write differently for like first Dave and then Jimmy? Or you just wrote the songs and you let them just, you know, have at it? Yeah, that's a great question. And the fact is, um, I, I, re I really tailored the songs to the singer. I think that's one of the talents of a, a good writer is to, to find a singer's voice. And Dave was very street, very gruff and, gr uh, gruff and gritty. Yeah. 
and I, I wrote much more rock-oriented uh, songs for him. You know, there was so many, um, you know, freelance and just, just gritty stuff. Jimmy came along, and immediately I heard this pretty, pretty sound, a sound that could rock, but it would also appeal to the female audience. I mean, before that, we were almost strictly male uh, audience-dominated. Now the girls were, you know, all dewy-eyed when they would hear him sing "The Search Is Over" or "I See You in Everyone" or you know, "Popular Girl." We attracted a whole new audience uh, with Jimmy, and uh, I would tailor my songs to to Jimmy's voice, and that's very important. You know, it's funny you mentioned "Freelance" because that was one of the songs I mentioned to Dave. How much I love that song! It's one of my favorite, like Survivor songs during his era. What was "Freelance"? Oh man, that's funny. Yeah, it really rocks. Yeah. Absolutely. So now we have, you know, I guess Tiger, which, you know, blew up and it's still one of the most, you know, popular songs to this date. Uh, how did uh, Salone find you guys? I started with a, a, a answering machine message. I got home and I pressed play. I was like, hey, yo, Jim, give me a call. It's Sylvester Stallone. It's a nice answering machine you got. And I, I honestly, I thought someone was putting me on. And uh, you know, I played it again. Hey, yo, Jim. I said, why would he be calling me, you know, without a, a secretary and like, come on, you know? So my wife, Karen, uh, her, listened to the message. He, she said, that sounds like Stallone. You better call him back. And making a long story short, 
because uh, that's a big story. It's a long story. But I called him back, and he said, hey, Jimbo, call me Sly. You know, so here's me, kid from Berwyn, calling my hero Sly. And uh, I said, uh, look, how you doing, Sly? You know, I, I warmed up to it pretty quick. And he said, look, I got this movie called Rocky Three, and uh, I don't want to use a going to fly now song. It's a good song, but I want something for the kids. Right. Something, with, something with a pulse. Can you help me out? And I, I said, yeah, I think we can help you out. He said, well, I want you to go out and rent, rent a Betamax Pro and and get together with Frankie, whoever you want to get together with, and write an anthem that will outlive you and me. I said, no problem. So set, next two days later, actually, the, the, the video cassette showed up, and I rented the Betamax Pro. Stick it in, and Frankie and I are watching it. And uh, there was music playing. You know, Mr. T's rising up, Stone's getting soft, and you hear bomb. Another one bites the dust. Oh, and another one. And I go, what the hell's going on? And I call Stallone. I go, hey, Sly, what's going on? You got a song from your movie. And he says, oh, I couldn't use it, man. You know, uh, you know, uh, Queen wouldn't let us get, to, uh, they wouldn't grant us the publishing rights, you know. And oh, my God, we were like, thank you, Queen, you know, for giving us the chance, you know. The shot at the title it was the greatest moment of our lives. And then we really got down and we started, you know, trading lines, rising up back on the street, did my time, took my chances, basically telling the story. And we didn't really have a title until we watched the whole movie and, and you hear the trainer, Mickey, going, Rocky, you're losing the eye of the tiger. Boom, 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 eye of the tiger. Uh, just a, an obvious title. And uh, we got together, the whole band, we, you know, Stefan and Mark Jubé and, of course, Dave. Frankie and myself, we went down to Chicago Recording Company and uh, with the uh, engineer Phil Bonanno, who actually engineered the first uh, two or three, uh, first two uh, Survivor albums. And man, I remember the first time we played that down, only the second take. And I have to credit, uh, well, everybody, but the, the rhythm section uh, was just amazing. We, at that point, we had gotten, uh, I don't want to say gotten rid of, but had said goodbye to, to Dennis and Gary because they were just a little too jazz oriented for, for us. We wanted a more uh, basic rhythm section. And we auditioned a, a great drummer, very influenced by John Bonham, uh, named Mark Jubé, and a, and a bass player that was just laying it down. He played with a pick, and it was just very Ronnie Lane oriented kind of a guy. And uh, when we heard that, that groove on Eye of the Tiger, we go, oh shit this is massive yeah. and it could never have sounded that way with our old rhythm section it was very very special to that rhythm section so uh, things came together and we sent it to stallone and he absolutely flipped out and uh i said well we'll be doing the final very soon he says what do you mean i'm going to use the demo for the movie i said really so when you hear the movie when you see the movie you're really you're listening to the demo and a lot of people don't know that, but if you really compare the demo with the master that came out three months later, two and a half months later, they are different takes. And, and we had gone to the West Coast by that time. The sound quality was far superior in the final, but something that it only took us three days to record, took us a month to try to uh, capture that vibe and the good sounds. So uh, I, always, I always think, man, we could have put out the demo, you know, but 
I'm glad we uh, got the sound quality we needed to. You guys won the Grammy and you were nominated for an Oscar, but you guys didn't perform at the Oscars. Why? No, no. Well, you know, that was the time when the, the law, the Grammy laws said a band that was up for uh, anything could not play uh, because you didn't want to influence the judges. Yeah. And that changed. That changed. I wish it hadn't changed, but it had the freaking temptations singing Eye of the Tiger doing tiger moves and we were so embarrassed it's like oh man right that really sucked but anyway we did i got a grammy to prove it right in back of me that uh just just a big big moment for the band right you know like i said the song was you know where, where is it here it is can you see it yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah, it's I keep it right in front of me on the on the console, uh, in case I get in a bad mood. Hey, I, I, look at this! I did this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. oh. And then you know, showing up Led Zeppelin to make you happy. That's that's great. <laughs> yeah, there's been a lot of good moments. You know, those aren't the only ones, but you know, great tours with Aria Speedwagon and um, with, um, of course. Um, Man, uh, so many different bands, you know. Um, Kansas. Well, Kansas for sure. Uh, but Brian Adams, that was a lot of dates with Brian Adams. And then we were on our solo uh, uh, solo tours as well, you know, where we were the headliner. And um, that was great too. That was my favorite times because we would be playing these theaters that were sonically perfect all across the country. It was, it was great. You know, that's, I saw you guys with Brian Adams. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, I guess Mickey Curry worked on your uh, Too Hot to Sleep album. Yeah. What an amazing drummer. Yeah, he's great. And, and Too Hot to Sleep is one of, I, I call it the Great Lost Survivor album. The music scene was just switching over to flannel shirts and, and grunge, you know. And we got lost in that shuffle, and a great album kind of got buried. And uh, I mean, songs like, you know, Too Hot to Sleep and uh, Across the Miles. And I mean, there's so many on that album. Desperate Dreams, that's my personal favorite.
but you know what can you what can you do hey I do have a, a kind of a scoop for you you know um, and Stallone called us uh, a few few months uh, excuse me a few weeks ago it wasn't him but it was his his representation uh, there's gonna be a director's cut of Rocky 4 coming out next year and I don't know nobody knows this but Frankie and I wrote for that movie for Rocky 4 and for some reason it was never used in the movie because of you know time constraints or they couldn't fit it in or God knows why but Stallone always was so disappointed that that song didn't make the movie well this is his chance it's the director's cut so he had more power and uh, his people called my people and Frankie's uh, people and it's going to be the end title cut to Rocky for the director's cut so we're thrilled that that song will have a second chance that's Men Against the World right that one correct, correct.
right. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Because uh, I think they added that later on to one of the uh, soundtracks, one of the re-releases, which is... Right, great. right. Uh, in Burning Heart, um, I'm sure that was easy for Stallone to call you guys. Like, I want another uh, theme for Rocky IV. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, 
but I didn't take anything for granted. I was so glad. We were on the road with REO when he called. And uh, in fact, he sent us the script. And two towns later, Frankie and I each got our copy and we sat around the pool and we, we read it. And we saw the, the whole dichotomy of the, the Cold War and, and Mr. T, you know, just, I mean, uh, the whole Dolph Lundgren thing, you know, the whole East-West tension uh, with Stallone. And, and it was just a great, uh, it was easy to write the song because you just had to harness the tension between the countries and the human beings. And you had the, the physical fight of two boxers, but it was also the ideological fight between East and West. It was just a great, uh, great theme to write a song to. Right. You can look at like, I the Tiger, where Stallone's on top and, you know, Mr. T is kind of fighting his way up. It's reversed in Rocky IV with Burning Heart because you have Drago at all the technological advances and then you have Stallone, you know, chopping wood, you know, plowing the, the snow and everything like that. So it's, it's a good flip, flipping the, t- you know, the script, so to speak, in those songs. It really is. And, and to me, that's one of the best uh, music videos I think we made right. uh, Rocky IV. Uh, I also loved uh, I Can't Hold Back. I, I love oh, that video. Yeah. You know, one of my personal favorites. And of course, that was, you know, we all took a different character and I was the businessman and Frankie was the greaser. And, uh, you know, Dave was, uh, I mean, uh, Jimmy was, of course, the star. He was like the uh, Tom Cruise guy, you know. And uh, Stefan was a nun. And of course, uh, Mark was a bum. So it, it was just, what a great, great video. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned because I Can't Hold Back my favorite Survivor song. There's a story in my eyes Turn the pages up, dear Now it's time to trade those dreams For the rush of passions by I can feel you tremble when we touch And I feel the hand of fate Reaching out to both of us Reaching out. 
It's mine too. I, I, I love that song. And that came about very late in the game. We had thought we were finished tracking for uh, Vital Signs. And in fact, some of the, the, some of the gear was being packed up and it was time to go up, upstate to, um, to the record plant up in Sausalito. And we were packing up gear and Frankie still had his amp out and he started doing this uh, really cool arpeggiated guitar part. And I said, what's that? He said, oh, I'm just fooling around. I said, wow. That's amazing. Keep doing that. And I hit the piano and I started doing the boom, ding, doom, ding. And he's doing do, 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 do. And man, I could just feel the magic surging through me. And Nevison comes strolling by. He goes, What's that? I said, Oh, it's just something we're fooling around with. He said, Finish it. We're going to cut it tomorrow. That's going to be the last song you guys cut. So um, we worked really hard in the studio for a couple hours and had most of it. The next morning I get up and I used to jog along the, uh, along the, the coast and uh, I finished the lyrics, you know. And uh, when we got to the record plant, we cut the track and Jimmy did a scratch vocal that was just incredible. And we knew we had something really, really special. And it became the first release. And um, I remember I was at the music tennis festival, which I used to do. And there was a Harley that pulled up in front of the hotel right. and it's blasting. I can't hold back from the, from the Harley uh, radio. And that was, you know, KLOS, that's new from Survivor. I can't hold back. And it was just a goosebump moment. And even though it wasn't the biggest uh, seller, it barely cracked the top 10. It was a very important song because it was the first time we really proved to, our, to the fans that we weren't just a Rocky band. We were our own band and could do really uh, great music. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to bring that up, that what's, what song was the one that kind of got you out of the, the Rocky stigma? So now I know it was God Can't Hold Back because... It, it really is. I mean, there was no excuses to that one and no, nobody took, 
nobody to, um, I, we couldn't rest on anyone's laurels with that. This was us with a new singer, and people had to reevaluate us for, for what we were. And uh, it was really an important song. Were there any like songs, you know, any of your bands that you released, you, you were really confident that it was going to do well and just didn't? And then the reverse, like the song that kind of surprised you? Yeah, well, I have to say, in, in all honesty, that uh, my least favorite uh, album was, um, well, it was the, the third one, let's say Caught in the Game. Caught in the Game was my least favorite album. Uh, Dave was going through a real hard time. He was starting to lose his voice. And I, maybe it's because I knew how he was struggling. I could hear that struggle in his vocal performances. And there's some real gems on that record, uh, but it didn't come easy. And, you know, things weren't smooth in the studio. And we were spending like an inordinate, inordinate I can't say the word, a lot of time. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah, a lot of time on the snare drum sound or something, you know, three days on a drum sound. Hey, come on, let's just cut, you know. And uh, it's, it's hard for me to listen to that record. Uh, as I said, you know, Santa Ana Whims are some amazing songs on that record. Uh, I, I keep wanting to redo uh, Santa Ana Whims wins with, with Toby. He'll, he would just knock it out of the park, you know. And you mentioned, you know, redoing some of the songs. You had an album, maybe about four or five years ago, called The Songs, where you kind of, yeah. in, you know, your songs throughout your career, which is fantastic. They all have different, you know, vibes from them and they sound really great. Um, how did you decide on all those songs? Well, I had the help of deciding uh, our producer, Fred Mullen, uh, he's a great producer. And, uh, you know, I've had a, a blessed with a few great producers through the years. And, you know, Ron Nevison, uh, number one, you know, with, with the first album and Vital Signs. And then uh, uh, Frank Filippetti was a great producer for uh, Too Hot to Sleep. Uh, but of late, it, it's Fred Mullen who did all the Jimmy Webb albums uh, since 1975, and Jimmy Webb is probably one of my biggest uh, songwriting heroes. Although he, he wasn't a big star, his records are really, really great, and his songs are just incredible. So I got to know Fred. He was living in, uh, in Nashville, and I would go to Nashville just to kind of write with other uh, Nashville people and perform at Tin Pan South, et cetera, et cetera. We always had lunch or dinner and a couple of drinks. Finally, he said, "Help! You got to let me produce the Ides of March. Why don't you do an unplugged album and reinvent all the songs, the, you know, the big songs?" And and so it was. And we really, I think he did an amazing job, not only pick, picking songs but helping with the arrangements and and all that. A couple of years later, the Ides of March uh, decided to really do the ultimate Ides of March album. And uh, instead of producing ourselves, we wanted someone, an outside force that would have a perspective that, that being, being in a band, it's, it's hard to have that perspective. And we hired Fred Mullen and we, we in 19, 1999, no, 2019, yeah. we, we, uh, we cut uh, Play On. And again, Fred was just incredible. We, we cut all the tracks live. And it's like the old days when we were cutting vehicle in Bald Medusa. We just had that vibe. It's great. Yeah, I love that album too. It's um, one good thing about you know the streaming sites because it's all right there and you can just discover it as well. 
But uh, one quick question going back to Vital Signs. Um, were there any like songs on there that you wrote that were kind of autobiographical, I guess, or where the inspirations came from? You know, the only thing is I, I see you in everyone. Wasn't really autobiographical, but it reflects uh, my favorite movie uh, with with Kim ne Novak, uh, you know, and Jimmy Stewart. Uh, and uh, the movie is called Vertigo. Thank you. I, I thought of it. And Kim Novak was my dream dream girl, you right. know, and just gorgeous. I I was really hooked on Kim Novak, and she kept changing her appearance and Jimmy Stewart kept seeing her and other women, oh, there she is. And then the woman would turn around and it was someone else. And I chatted down, I see you in everyone. So it was my homage to to Hitchcock, really, and Kim Novak. So it was a very personal sign for me. Well, that's great, yeah. That's a great one, too. Now, remember where you were the first time you heard one of your songs on the radio? Oh, um, well, for vehicle, right. I, I was in my, uh, in my, 1964 Valiant, cruising down I-55, and listening to the Dick Biondi show on WLS, and all of a sudden I hear Dick Biondi, you're new from the Ides of March. Vehicle, ba da ba ba da da. Hey, well, I'm the friendly stranger in the black sedan, and won't you hop inside my car? I got pictures, got candy, I'm a lovable man, and I can take you to the nearest star. I'm your vehicle, baby. Take it anywhere you want to go. I'm your vehicle, woman. But now I'm sure you know that I love you. I need you. I want you. Got to have your child. Break out in here, but you know I love you. And by that time, I'm going about 90 miles an hour down I-55. That's good. And those are the moments you never, never forget. I'm sure, yeah. Now, now what about the most interesting place you heard one of your songs? Well, um, God, I, you know, for me, it's one thing the critics loving the song, and that's great. And, you know, yeah. Someone like you, it means a lot that you would like a song, but you know what? It's the people that, that really tell the tale. And Eye of the Tiger had just come out, and we didn't know if we really had a hit or not yet, believe it or not. We were feeling really good about it, and we were on tour with, with REO, and um, no, with Triumph. Okay. Yeah, very early on uh, when, when, the song, when the album just came out. And I was kind of a loner in a way because I like to just be alone and find a, find a restaurant and eat some pizza and just write down words. And so I ate at this pizza hut, you know, with the red uh, checkered tablecloths, you know, and uh, there was this jukebox in the middle of the, not the middle of the room, on the side of the room. And all of a sudden I hear, you know, and my, my uh, ears perk up, you know, and I'm like, holy, that, but the, the real kicker right. was a little girl, she had to be like five years old, she springs up from the table and she goes over the, the jukebox and starts twirling around and dancing. And she said, Mommy, Mommy, they're playing my song. Oh, wow. <laughs> and you know what? All the critics in the world couldn't have, uh, I couldn't have felt any better. But that was the real deal. Un, uninhibited, 
reaction from a five-year-old girl, and that's when I knew we had something really special. And, you know, you have more than just that one little girl as a fan. You got me and you have millions of others. But, Jim, thank you so much for your time today. I mean, this was a real treat. I, I really appreciate it. Well, uh, it's, it's a pleasure talking to you. Uh, because, obviously, you're very passionate about music and just know, know a lot about me and Survivor and Ides of March and my, my past and present and hopefully uh, a long future. So I love doing what I do. Right now I'm writing with uh, Robert Lamb of Chicago uh, for a new album. I'm writing with uh, Brian Wilson with Larry and Joe Thomas. Writing with uh, who else? Uh, Ides of March for a new album. And of course, Des DeYoung for volume two of 26 East. Oh, wow. So, um, you know, I, I haven't lost any time with, with the COVID because you know, a lot of what I do is in the studio. I do miss live very much, but, uh, you know, I'm getting a lot done and it's been a lot of fun. It seems like, and hopefully, you know, the live will come back eventually. We'll oh, it will. It will. We're, we're ready to go when it does. I'll tell you that. And a special thanks to Jim for joining me today. Go check out his website, jimpeterick.com. Check out the Pride Alliance. Go back and revisit Survivor and the Ides of March. And Jim's solo work is to the album of the songs, which he has his special take on some of his signature songs. It's great. Check that out. It's on the streaming sites. And if you have a guest suggestion, you can hit me up on Twitter at the first one nine, or like the page Living My Youth on Facebook. Go to iTunes. Check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, you can rate and review the show. You don't have iTunes? Not a problem. Shows on Spotify, SoundCloud, Podbean, or wherever podcasts are found. Go to reallymyyouth.threadless.com for all your merchandise. The holidays are right around the corner. You can get a great gift there. A new episode comes in every week. Stay safe, everybody, and happy Thanksgiving.